Turn in your Bibles, if you will, again to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We'll look at verses 38 to 48 uh, today. In this chapter, this first part of the Sermon on the Mount that goes all, all the way through to chapter 7, Jesus is contrasting his teaching with what the people have he- had heard from the teachers of the law. So several sections of this passage begin with, you have heard that it was said, but then Jesus says, but I say to you. This morning we come to the last two of those sections, and um, a, a teaching which actually is not too difficult to understand, it's just about impossible to practice, that's our only problem. And so we have two points, uh, the verses uh, 38 to 42 is one part of this, verses 43 to the end of the chapter is the second part. So I'm going to read those passages separately and talk about the first and then read and talk about the second one. So let me read verses 38 to 42. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking. He said, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If when someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn your other Turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. First part of the text. First point. Quit trying to get even. Quit trying to get even. The section is about seeking revenge in one way or another, and how we love sweet revenge. Though I've never watched it, I see it advertised for the last four seasons. There's been a dramatic television series actually called Revenge. 89 episodes about a young woman seeking revenge on a family that framed and imprisoned and killed her father. But we don't have to watch TV to learn about how we love revenge. Just this week, I was driving up the guide from Bellingham, and some guy thought I wasn't going fast enough and uh, swung around me and swerved sharply in front of me close enough that I thought he was going to take my front bumper off and uh, just to let me know his disapproval. And what was my reaction? An instant desire to get even. I'll show you a thing or two. Desires that, unfortunately, I mention out loud to my wife, Though fortunately I did not act on them. (laughs) But you know what I'm talking about. How quickly the desire for revenge rises within us. We need to hear what Jesus says here. What Jesus' audience had heard from the teachers of the law sounded like God's law gave, uh, established a right to get even. An eye for an eye. And a tooth for a tooth, that certainly is in the Old Testament law. Indeed, this is called the lex talionis, the law of retribution. I'm sorry, retaliation. But that statement did not extend to people, to individuals, uh, a legal right of revenge. This this statement was more like uh, what we would call sentencing guidelines for a court of law parameters or limits for the punishment of of people who broke the law. The Bible was concerned that the punishment inflicted fit the crime committed, that it not be more than the crime committed, or that it might not be just a tap on the hands or something. 
But the scribes and the Pharisees had taken these statements and applied them to a personal ethic. John Stott explains, they evidently extended this principle of just retribution from the law courts to the realm of personal relationships. They used it to justify personal revenge, though the law specifically forbade that. We know that when we read in Leviticus 19, for example, do not seek revenge or even bear a grudge against one of your people. Quite in contrast to this doctrine of personal retribution, Jesus' teaching can be summed up in the words of verse 39. Do not resist an evil person. Now there's some things that such a statement cannot mean because of what the scripture says elsewhere. It cannot mean that God will never resist evil. Well, God does exactly that by judging and dealing out retribution on evil. Nor can it mean that we are not to resist the evil one, Satan. We're commanded to resist the devil and he will flee from us. And it cannot mean that we're to just accept evil as normal without any objection. For we're specifically told to put to death the deeds of the flesh and and the unfruitful deeds of darkness to reprove and expose them. God calls us to pursue justice and righteousness in every way we can. And finally, it does not prohibit governments and courts and, and the police from resisting evil. Indeed, according to Romans 13, that's their job. The state is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Summing it up, Jesus is simply teaching that on a personal level, in our relationships, we need to quit trying to get even. Give up revenge. Give up retaliation. Jesus knows that our desire for revenge follows from some rights that we believe we have. And so he gives us several relevant situations to teach us otherwise. First situation is somebody slaps us in the face. You find that there in verse uh, uh, verse 39, into verse 39. Somebody slaps us in the face. And no matter what culture you're in, that is a blatant insult. Uh, such an insult that it seems to demand retribution. But the Lord does not recognize any such right of retribution on somebody who slaps you in the face. Indeed, this is... Jesus himself faced this. And what did he do? We read about it, forecast in Isaiah 50. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. But that displayed Jesus' strength, not his weakness. John Stott writes, an anvil is one thing, a doormat is another. Jesus' illustration and personal example depict not the weakling who offers no resistance. He himself challenged the high priest when questioned by him in court. They depict rather the strong man whose control of himself and love for others are so powerful that he rejects every conceivable form of retaliation. And that's the point here. No retaliation. We read it in Romans 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my friends. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So when someone cuts you off in traffic, slaps you in the face, so to speak, 
Jesus says, don't retaliate. Just let him in. Just let him in next time. What difference does it make? Quit thinking you have the right to get even. Second situation that Jesus brings up is someone sues us in order to take our stuff. Surely in that case, we have a right to get even. Surely we have a right to our own things. But Jesus says, no. No, the law's protection of our property does not constitute a right to retaliation. If someone wants to sin against you by taking what is yours, let it go. It's only stuff. In fact, give him whatever he needs. Of course, as many of you know, the story of grace and redemption contained in the play Les Miserables begins with just such an example of giving to the one who just stole from you. Stop thinking you have to get even. The third situation that Jesus mentioned is someone imposes on our time and energy and um, freedom. This was a real issue in Jesus' culture. Remember Simon of Cyrene? He was a poor visitor to Jerusalem, just happened to be there for the holy days, and suddenly the Roman soldiers grabbed him and said, you, come here and carry this cross. He carried Jesus' cross. We don't live in a culture where soldiers commandeer our lives very often, but we all know people who do that to us, who unreasonably presume upon our lives. And Jesus says, don't worry about that stuff. If someone commandeers your help, steals your time and energy, rather than retaliate, respond to his need. Give even more than they need. This has become a popular idiot in our language. Go the extra mile. Jesus said that. Quit trying to get even. Fourth situation, verse 42. Someone always wants money. Always wants money and never pays it back. Now we know from other passages that the principle of personal property is a biblical concept. The, um, the Bible's not calling us to be one big commune, com- commune where nobody owns anything, everybody owns your stuff as well as you own their stuff. No. The Bible talks about the ownership of personal property. Jesus is just saying that our ownership of some wealth is not an absolute right to hold on to our wealth and turn it back on those who need help. Now, if you have to deal with panhandlers every day, this is a difficult thing to know how to apply, for there's so many other considerations. Is your generosity actually promoting irresponsible living? Are you inadvertently feeding someone's drug habit, uh, thus helping them kill themselves? Is the kind of help which is really needed something different than just money? You have to answer those things. Those are legitimate questions we have to deal with, and they may limit the kind of help we can give in a, in a, in a, a given situation. But Jesus will not let us just get callous and cynical toward the needy while we hoard our blessings, saying, these are mine. These are mine. I deserve them. You try to take them, I'll get even with you. Now, these four little cameos which Jesus gives us do not answer all of our questions, nor can they be applied with rigid literalism, for they're not detailed regulations. They're just illustrations of a principle. Nevertheless, these word pictures do make Jesus' radical point quite well. Not only does he forbid us to retaliate, if our rights, as if our rights are absolute, 
He calls us to gracious generosity, even in the face of unreasonable demands. Simply put, Jesus is telling him, you have no right to get even. So quit trying. That's the first point. Jesus is not finished. Let me keep reading verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here we have a second point. Love people like God loved you. Love people like God loved you. The subject at hand here is a most challenging one, the issue of how to deal with your enemies. Actually, it's quite a simple matter to think about hypothetically, but when someone sets himself against you and attacks you without any cause and speaks evil of you and seeks to undo your good work and twists your words to destroy your good name, in short, acts in hateful, malicious ways toward you, uh, suddenly it's not such an easy subject of what to do with that person. Sometimes as we read these things, uh, the, the difference between what the teachers of the law taught and what Jesus said is, uh, is difficult to distinguish. It sounds very similar. That's not true here. The law of God never said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It never said that. The rabbis left out some things. They, they left out the standard of love where it said, love your neighbor as yourself. And then they narrowed down the definition of neighbor to mean somebody like me. Even though the law specifically said, leave the gleanings of the field, of, of, of the field for the poor and the sojourner, that's the non-Jew. Uh, treat an alien like you would treat a citizen. No racial discrimination. If your enemy's animal goes astray, deal with it just like you would deal if it was your own animal. These are all neighbors that are not just like you. So they, they, they redefined who your neighbor was, and then, and then they used the imprecatory psalms, where, uh, psalms about God unleashing his wrath on the wicked, and they used that as, a, as a, a license to feel that way, to hate their enemies. The point is, this was a blatant, dis, uh, a blatant distortion of the law's commands. But it's the kind of thing people do with the scriptures. Take an isolated statement on loving your neighbor... Take a statement about God's judgment on the wicked and combine them and come up with something like love your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Dear people, guard against such simplistic handling of the scriptures. It will get you right where it got the scribes and Pharisees, rejecting the Lord, going off in their own kind of religious ways. So here Jesus corrects their teaching. His teaching is not really contradictory to the Old Testament, though it may be much more explicit and emphatic. In short, his teaching is that we love our enemies, not just our friends and neighbors. We love people like God loved us. So how can we love our enemies? How do you turn off the resentment that you feel and turn on some more affectionate feelings toward your enemies? 
You can't do it. You don't have a little switch behind your ear where you can turn down the, the resentment and turn up the affection. Faith acts in raw obedience. Trust God for a hard attitude to change as we obey him. So Jesus calls us not to loving feelings. He calls us to loving actions toward our enemies. Do good to them. Bless them. Do not curse them. Do not repay evil for evil. Pray for them. Give to them. Tend, lend lend to them, not expecting repayment. Live at peace with them. Feed them. Give them something to drink. Respond to evil with good. This is exactly the opposite of what we feel like doing. And it may sound rarely noble when we stand here and say it, but when somebody does you evil, it will not be the first thing that comes to your mind. So why should we do something that's so opposed to our nature? Why should we even try to love our enemies? Well, according to verse 45, by loving our enemies, we show ourselves to be the children of God. For we're acting like our father when we love our enemies. We're loving people like God loved us. And how does God love his enemies? Well, on the most basic level, according to verse 45, he makes the sunshine and the rainfall on the wicked as well as the righteous. This truth is called common grace by theologians. Common grace is the fact that God gives good gifts even to wicked people. In other words, he blesses his enemies who have set themselves against him. He blesses them with undeserved, gracious gifts. And examples of this are all around. It's not just that the farmer, the, the, the godless farmer's crops grow just like the righteous farmer's crops grow, but the fact that an atheistic doctor can become a great surgeon and, 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 and a wicked artist can produce masterpieces of art and music. Now, this can be a troubling thing for us to deal with. Consider the godly woman who tries and tries and tries to have a child all to no avail while she sees young female drug addicts popping out children addicted to drugs from birth. God, how can you let that happen? Lord, how can you give good gifts to those who don't deserve them? Remember the movie Amadeus from years ago? It was a story about common grace. How could God give musical genius to a godless young brat named Mozart while only giving moderate gifts to the more faithful Antonio Salieri? It ended up driving Salieri mad. How can God do that? But you see, such is the goodness and grace of God. He is good even to the undeserving. Not with second-class gifts, often with the very best gifts. Though they're ungrateful. And if God, who is the Holy One against whom all sin is committed, if God can be so gracious, then so can you. So by acting in love toward our enemies, we show God-likeness. Of course, this doesn't begin to address the greatest expression of God's love, his saving grace to those who deserve damnation. 
if it is gracious to give sun and rain to the godless, how much more gracious must it be to give your only begotten son for them? And of course, you and I are among, are among the godless there, the wicked, for whose salvation God sent his son. We have not received the wrath we deserve. We've received love and grace. Because God has loved his enemies. He loved you and he loved me when we were really, really unlovely and sometimes still are. Worse, we were rebels who defied him. Jesus is simply calling us to love others the way he loved us. This is the appeal of Ephesians 4. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Jesus seems to indicate that to do anything less is simply to be like the pagans. An old man I used to know always said that only Christians could really love anybody. Only a Christian man could really love his wife. Non-Christian man doesn't know anything about that. Only Christian parents could really love their children. Other parents don't know anything about love. Only Christians know. Well, Jesus said that's not true. That's not true. Everybody loves people that love them. Even mobsters love their families who love them back. Even murderers have friends who treat them nice and whom they treat nice, though they're not nice people. So what kind of Christianity is it that produces in us nothing better than the behavior of mobsters and murderers? Loving the people that love you back. That's what they do. That's what everybody does. You see, what's distinctive about Christians is not that we know how to love and nobody else knows how to love out there. Oh, no, that's not distinctive. What is distinctive about Christians is that we love our enemies. Not just those who love us. Doing less than that denies the faith. If our faith leaves us unchanged acting just like the pagans act, then what makes us think there's anything to that faith? It's just God talk. It's empty words. It's a joke. It's bogus. It is nothing. You see, grace is what distinguishes us from the world. We have received grace from God. We practice grace to those who don't deserve it. And if we don't, mm, maybe we better look at our own hearts again. Alfred Prummer wrote, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. But to return good for evil, that is divine. In this passage, Jesus is wrapping up his description of the righteousness that will characterize his disciples. Back in verse 20, he said it was righteousness. It had to be righteousness. It was greater 
then the meticulous righteousness, the meticulous religion of the scribes and Pharisees. Now in verse 48, we see there has to be nothing less than the perfection of the Father. Righteousness that abandons getting even like Jesus didn't get even. Righteousness that loves others like God loves us. What a standard. How might we possibly meet this standard? Well, this is the purpose for which Jesus came into the world, folks. The apostle wrote in Romans 3, now righteousness, that's what we're talking about. How do we be righteous enough? How do we gain a righteousness that is acceptable before God? Now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. In other words, our only hope is found in the gospel. That Jesus has been righteous in a way that we will never be successfully. And that by grace, he then takes our sin and forgives it and gives us his right standing before God. That is the grace of the gospel. The grace we celebrate this morning at the table. Jesus giving himself for us that he might give his righteousness to us. Oh, but Jesus' teaching here is not just to drive us to see our our desperate need of a Savior. Here Jesus teaches us then to live out that righteousness that he gives to us. What we have studied in this chapter is the definition of Christian discipleship. It is only to be found in in, in Jesus, that's certain. But it is just as certainly the one who trusts in Jesus will increasingly practice this grace of the Savior. Because we're children of God and we act like our Father. Grace has been shown to us. We show grace in response. May God make us so. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the Savior. Lord, when we see your righteousness held up before us, we realize how far, far short of it. We can keep external rules pretty good sometimes. But when you start driving down to examining our hearts and what's driving us, and whether we're just doing what we feel like doing or whether we're really doing the opposite of how we feel and giving ourselves the way you gave yourself for us, Lord, we find that uh, we're not very good at that. And none of us would want to stand on our record before you, Lord. So we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the way you drive us to the end of ourselves, that we might trust the Savior. Refresh us, Lord, in our confidence in Jesus as we, as we celebrate the sacrament and think about Jesus giving himself for us, we pray in his name. Amen.